the staff where we talk about our point of view And we share the things we're gonna do And we hope you're learning something new Cause the path to mastering theory begins with you Hi, welcome to Notes from the Staff. I'm Greg Risto, founder of U-Theory and professor of conducting at the Oberlin Conservatory. I'm Leah Sheldon. I'm a former middle school band director and U-Theory's head of teacher engagement. I'm David Newman, and I teach voice and music theory at James Madison University, and I do programming and content creation for U-Theory. And we're your hosts for Notes from the Staff. So yeah, welcome everyone to episode one. Pretty exciting for me. Um, uh, maybe we should talk just a little bit about what notes from the staff will be or what we hope notes from the staff will be. Sound good? Yeah. Great. So um, I guess the thing that I thought about, first off, we have to give Leah credit for coming up with the, with the, the brilliant name for, uh, for notes from the staff. Thank you. Um, uh, in my own music education training, I wasn't taught all that much about uh, how to teach uh, music theory, how to teach... Uh, ear training. I learned a lot about how to teach performance, and there was a, a lot of focus on that side of things. Uh, but really, there wasn't all, often all that much space for talking about how do we help students understand the music that they're performing or get to a point where they can create music themselves. So I'm hoping that uh, Notes from the Staff can be a, a place for us to share ideas around that, to pick each other's brains, to bring in guests and talk with them about that as well. And I know I'm personally really interested in the way that we can leverage technology and the the reach of something like a podcast to help give really practical advice to people who may have really pressing needs. I think Greg nailed it. A degree in music education uh, comes with a lot of coursework. Uh, you have your education classes, classes in psychology, uh, methods classes, and there's not a, a usually a dedicated course in how to teach, for example, intervals. So this is a just a great way to get the conversation going on that. Yeah. So we thought for our first episode, we'd start with a red hot topic, the topic of solfege methods. How do you choose a solfege method? What are the solfege methods? What are what are they good for? Um, I know this is this is one that uh, every musician I know has a strong opinion on. So just to get the ball rolling, um, why don't we each just say what our favorite solfege method is, what the solfege method that we hear music in is. Uh, David, you want to start us off? Well, I could, uh, I'm going to uh, sabotage myself by saying that I, I probably don't initially use a solfege method uh, in terms of the way I hear music, but it, having been teaching oral skills for uh, over a decade, uh, I use movable dough with dough-based minor. And I was taught in scale degrees, so I hear and think in scale degrees. Um, but when I was teaching in the classroom, I mostly taught movable dough. Yeah, I hear music in scale degrees and fixed dough. If I know what key it's in, I hear it in fixed dough. Uh, otherwise, I hear it in scale degrees. And uh, I have at this point taught just about all of the systems, fixed dough, scale degrees, movable dough, dough bass minor, movable dough, la bass minor. Um, and frankly, I, I have found in doing that that each system has its own strengths and teaches you different things about, about music. It makes it possible to hear music in kind of cool different ways. So, uh, well, let's just talk a little bit about each of the systems, or even before that. Um, why would we want to use a solfege system? What's the, what's the point? 
I, I know that when I'm teaching oral skills, I mean, we, if, if we don't use any system at all, uh, there, there's sort of too much latitude to uh, try and figure out how to convey ideas. So for me, I'm trying to build a framework uh, and I think that's what all of these provide as a framework to think about the music that you're you're hearing. And the reason why I've used movable dough, aside from the fact that it's what we already taught at JMU, um, is that it creates a functional system where you're hearing um, how notes function in a scale. Yeah, I think without a system, you're relying on pure memorization and rote teaching. Mm. And that's very time consuming. Yeah, I, I think um, for me, I want, I, I think one of the prime goals of musical study is that if if a student hears something, they understand what's happening in it. Uh, or if they um, have imagined something in their ear, they, they should be able to take that to an instrument or to the page. And they should be able to look at the page and and hear what they see on the page. And Solfege, I think, is is uh, the really the best tool. And, and when I say solfege, right, I mean I mean scale degrees or movable dough or fixed dough or letter names, right? Ways of uh, where we're verbalizing uh, something that you couldn't just hear from the pitch about the note. Um, solfege helps get us uh, between between sound and and the instrument or the page, right? And uh, without it, you're kind of you're kind of shooting in the dark. If you're trying to figure out how something you've heard goes on the piano, if you're just sort of guessing and hitting notes, yeah, you're eventually going to figure it out. But uh, something a solfege system gets you there much faster. So, for me, that's that's why solfege. Mm. Uh, I don't know. Have any of you had this experience of like asking a student to sight sing, and <laughs> They do it terribly, and then you say, hey, have you done any solfege? Would you try it again? And they say, I'm terrible at solfege. But then they try it again, and it goes better. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, feel like that's, I feel like that's, you know, the classic. I, I, I joke with my, I joke. I, I mean, it's not even a joke. I talk with my students about what I call the, the six levels of solfege mastery, where, like, when, you know, in, inevitably, if I'm introducing solfege to a group of students that doesn't know it, um, the first time we're we're doing it, they're like, "Oh my God, this is so hard! Why can't, especially if we're reading, you know, reading something together? Why can't we just sing it on the words? Why can't we just sing it on la la la?" Uh, and that's level one, right? That's like, "Oh my God, the system gets in my way. I'm better off without the system." And then level two is this, like, "Oh, I can, yeah, oh yeah, okay, I can sort of tell that that sounds like a dough, and that doesn't sound like a dough." And maybe there's something to it, right? And then uh, level three is this sort of like, oh, okay, I've got to go way slower when I do solfege compared to just la la la. But, you know, I actually get things more right. And then level four is like when the buy-in really happens of like, oh yeah, I always want to sing on solfege because then I do it right. Don't make me sing on anything else. Level five is this, this hideous phase where you can't not hear the solfege. You're driving in your car, you've got the radio on, and the pop music is, is no longer text but solfege. And then level six is, you know, fluency, where, where uh, when you want it, the solfege is there, but you don't have to consciously think about it. Um, and I don't know, for me, it's just such a joy to help, to help, you know, get students from whatever level they are to a level or two farther along that continuum. 
And it gives them independence. Totally. Yeah. Do those, do those levels resonate with you, David? You teach so much oral skills at JMU. Yeah, they do. I mean, I'm, I, uh, I guess what's funny is that you get, you can have a classroom full of students and have people at all of those levels at the same time. Um, and so differentiation becomes a challenge for sure. And inevitably, I also have experienced the reverse of what you have said, where someone comes and does a sight singing exam and does it on solfege first, and then says, well, the solfege is messing me up. <laughs> and uh, I say, okay, well, try it without. And then it's much worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's much worse, but they think it's much better, right? Right, because they don't have any system calling them into compliance. <laughs> I, I call it um I call it playing darts blindfolded, uh, right? It's yeah. like or it's like walking a tightrope without without a net. It's just it's if you're if you're gonna sing something without some sort of system going on, how are you gonna know? And it doesn't have to necessarily be a verbalized system, right? I mean, I think there are a lot of people who sing la 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 just great, but they're totally aware of where they are in the scale, etc. So yeah, and I have actually found that I've started to use solfege much more in uh, when teaching voice mm. um, because yeah there where maybe the system is more commonly that people learn it on the piano or because no one told them they couldn't um, and so they they learn what they think they heard solfege is really great uh, no matter what system you use for honing in and seeing if you really heard what you thought you heard. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. So shall we dive into the systems a little bit and just talk through them? So I think the the, the ones yeah. that I th we would call the major systems are scale degrees, movable dough, including dough minor and law minor, uh, fixed dough and, and its sort of uh, sibling letter names, which are basically the same thing, but in different languages. So uh, yeah. Scale degrees, Leah. Yeah, so scale degrees, quick overview here, um, are just simply numbering the pitches of the scale from one to seven. So if you're thinking of a C major scale, uh, the first note C would be one, D would be two, E is three, F is four, G five, A six, and B seven. And then instead of going to eight, C would repeat at one again and so on. If we were to sing it, then it'd be like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one. Exactly. And I was, what I was going to say is sometimes uh, seven is shortened to sev, so that it's only one syllable. It's easier to sing. Yeah. Now, what do you do when you're in minor? Uh, the names of the scale degrees do not change. So three stays three. Um, the, the challenge is differentiating that major three from minor three. So... Um, that, that, that is maybe where, uh, some teachers prefer the, uh, strength of movable dough, um, and, and having a different pitch for a, uh, different scale, major or minor. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, David, you want to take us through movable dough a bit? Sure. I'm, I was just going to comment on, on the scale degrees thing though. I mean, I love scale degrees and I, I, I think I often do think in scale degrees, um, and the only thing is, uh, and the useful thing about them is that they presuppose the environment that you're living in. 
Um, so if you know you're living in, you know, a, a minor key and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, or one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, it, um, but you still know what, uh, and we, we kind of need to know that, uh, as one of the things that we, if we want to advance in our music theory skills, we, we, we certainly need to know what scale degrees we're on. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, so scale degrees really is about uh, establishing a hierarchy of where we are in the scale of saying where all the notes are in relation to a tonic. Um, and whether, whether that tonic be a major tonic or a minor tonic. And I, I don't know about you all, but when I'm, when I'm doing scale degrees, if I'm doing, you know, a, a true modal tune, I will stay with calling the, the fundamental note of the mode one. So like if I'm, if I'm in, Lydian, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one. Right. Uh, yeah. And even if you're in, you know, a, a more, you know, a mode that we don't, uh, not one of our, you know, seven named modes, but if you're mm -hmm. in, you know, in one of those right. modes, there's, it's still mm -hmm. scale degrees, unless, unless you're doing something octatonic or, you know, adding yeah, extra yeah, notes. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's, you know, I think that's one of the, one of the beautiful things about scale degrees is that the words you sing don't change. Don't change. Right. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned that as a challenge, but honestly, it's a, it really forces the um, understanding behind the uh, relationship of each pitch in the scale based yeah. on what kind of scale you're singing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Whether it's, whether it's major or minor, one of the modes, or as David started mm -hmm. to play the Phrygian major scale. Yeah. So when we do uh, movable dough, we're we're just using the same thing, but we're using the the solfege syllables to name the those degrees of the scale. But they also have inflections, and uh, one of the really one of the things that people love about them uh, is is that they're easy to sing, uh, that they all have one syllable, and um, they can help show us some other could you things. Just, could you sing a major scale for us on on Movaldo Solfege, just sure. so we so and we maybe have... pick a key other than C major, so that we just <laughs> right. So here's A, um, and so do re mi fa sol la ti do do ti la so fa mi re do. Yeah. So in Movaldo, we're calling the first note of the major scale do. Right. Right. So do is always the tonic. Mm -hmm. Actually, well, actually, it depends. It depends on which kind of movable dough you're using. Yeah, but in major, but in major, dough is always the tonic. In major, the dough is always the tonic, and that does yeah. simplify uh, a number of things. Um, uh, it, it makes it easier to ask about key signatures. You can just say, where's dough? <laughs> and you don't have to clarify what <laughs> mode you're in or whether you're in major or minor. It's just dough is there. Yeah. Um, so David, you talked a little bit about uh, inflections. Can you? Uh, so we've got we have do re mi fa sol la ti do, but then uh, would you sing? Would you sing something slightly chromatic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do di re ri mi do mi fa fi so do so si la li ti do so do do ti te la le so do so se fa mi do mi mere ra do is how I. To the chromatic scale, yeah. So that we have we have alterations of the vowel, the same the same consonant for each of the chromatic notes. 
Yeah, and so every, at least every common function that you might hear uh, has has a one syllable name <laughs> that you can connect to it. Yeah. So, so you mentioned already that there there are kind of different ways of doing minor. What are those? So the most common, uh, well, there are two common ways of doing minor, and one is to use do based minor, which uh, means that you'll alter the other, you'll alter the scale degrees that are different. Uh, so you have do re me fa sol le te do, or if you have melodic minor do re me fa sol la ti do. Um, if we are, uh, however, many people advocate also la-based minor, where you leave uh, do as the major uh, tonic and use uh, a rotation of the scale for minor, which would give you la, ti, do, re, mi, fa, so, la. Mm -hmm. I am less recognizing that it, it's sort so of I have like... to stop and think. <laughs> yeah, because that's not that's not the system that that you you're you live in most often. Yeah, so la base minor is a lot like um, is closely related to relative minor, right? We're saying right. that effectively, if we're in C major and we started on on A and sang from A to A, we'd have mm -hmm. a minor scale, right? And that's right. and that's effectively our la base minor. Whereas do base minor kind of uh, is much more like the parallel minor. We're in C major. If we switch to C minor, now we have three flats. And we're going to alter those. We're going to alter our mi, our la, and our ti to be half step lower, me, le, and te. Yeah. And, you know, there are, in some ways, I think that the method you use uh, will be more or less useful depending on what kind of music you're looking at. So we, we had talked earlier about how a lot of pop music... Uh, Really, if it's in minor, you you really should analyze it as 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 starting on six, <laughs> and, um, and and also so, I mean, there's so much there's there's so much pop music that kind of lives in this. Is are we are we in minor? Are we in major? That's sort of drifting between that relative major, relative minor. So you know we find we find this phenomenon all the time with this artist. Uh, Hosier, Hosier, how do you say his name? Hosier. Hosier. So we, uh, we we should write a song a la uh, a la him um, that that of how to pronounce his name like Hosier. Hosier. And then we can yeah that yeah. that way we'll remember. And it's like, are we in do or uh, are we in this key or this key? Right. right. It's like it's, yeah. it's it you're, you're in this key for two chords, maybe, and then you're in this key for two chords, maybe, yeah. and it just yeah. goes back and forth. And you're freely, that you're happens freely, a lot. freely flowing between those within within the collection of diatonic white notes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> this is true in in a ton of folk music as well, right? That just. There are so many tunes. I, th I think even, you know, here we are just at the start of the New Year's. And so I've been hearing Christmas carols. God rest you, merry gentlemen, is one of the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Like, David, why did you put us in A minor, which is very low for me? Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so this, right, one, one, five, five, sorry. Uh, 
Switch La minor. La la mi mi re do si la so la si do re mi. La la mi mi re do si la so la si do re mi. Mi fa re mi fa so la mi re do la ti do re do re mi fa mi mi re do ti la. Right? It's like you hear those those places in there that feel so great to sing do re mi fa mi. We were so clearly in this little brief major turn and having you know having done that in. Uh, in La-based minor, that that little shift to the relative major is totally taken care of for us. We don't have to think about shifting to, a, uh, you know, moving our do to a different note or anything like that. And that's uh, that's really, really lovely. Um, maybe a little stranger for uh, where we have more parallel motion, right? And so I think a lot of, like, especially uh, Austrian-Viennese school classical music uh, works a lot more within parallel major and minor. And so maybe uh, do minor suits that better. You know, I've advocated uh, at times for uh, thinking in do-based minor uh, with things that are, uh, especially when things have similar patterns. I mean, I uh, for one thing, sol ti re fa is always a dominant seven. <laughs> then in any <laughs> key you're in, and I don't, I I can't even tell you what it is in la-based minor. I have to. I'd have to stop and think. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um it's yeah it's it's mi si ti re. Yeah, and I I'm sure that if you're fluent in la based minor, then you then you already know that. <laughs> yeah, so I think now now we're really now we're starting to get at at one of the key differences between la minor and do minor, or, or reasons you might choose one system or another, right? And it, if it, and scale degrees is very much like do minor in that. Uh, whether yes. you're in major or minor, you're you're calling the tonic of the scale the same thing. The same right? thing. Mm -hmm. But if you're so, if we're talking about um, this choice between scale degrees do minor or la minor, then I th part of the question I think is is uh, is your focus on melodic reading or on harmonic understanding? Mm -hmm. Because David, as as you point out, if your focus is on harmonic understanding. Then, then one of your goals is going to be to acquaint students with each chord within a scale, and uh, and the words are going to stay pretty much the same in scale degrees in do minor, but they're going to change if you're using la minor. So that's you know that's one of the things you might consider. Um, on the other hand, if if your primary goal is is quickness of sight reading. Then uh, it may not be as much a concern. Law minor might, in fact, be be the better choice because you don't have to worry so much about those two. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably why, I, in my experience, talking with you know teachers at the middle school and high school level versus teachers at the college level, uh, teachers at the middle school, high school, elementary level tend to prefer law based minor, and those at the college level where they're starting to work on harmony and Roman numeral and, and chord function uh, tend to prefer Do minor or scale degrees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we haven't talked about fixed Do and letter names. Um, and so I have to say, these are, are two of my favorite systems. Uh, in a way, they're kind of non-systems, right? They're just, they're, uh, so basically fixed Do is in many countries, what, what they think of as their letter names. So that, you know, if you were in 
a Spanish-speaking country or a French-speaking country, then you don't, you, they don't say C, D, E, F, G, but they say Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, uh, A, La, B, they actually say C, S, I, mm-hmm. right? And those are just, those are just their letter names. So uh, for, for someone who's grown up in a culture where those are their letter names, to call a note other than C, Do, feels really weird, right? It's like, it's like if I said, okay, great, uh, let's all sing a C major scale starting on, uh, this is again, let's sing a D major scale starting on C, right? Like it would just feel really no, weird for us no. to say, like as we sit there and see you know, C, D, E as we get to F sharp, right? So yeah, so fixed do as, as a system is just uh, a system of of naming the letters in the same way that if we were singing something on letter names, we're just saying it's this letter, it's that letter. And generally in fixed do, we, we don't sing sharp or flat when the notes are sharped or flatted. We just, uh, we just sing, uh, we just sing do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, sol, la, or si. Um, it, David, would you play D major yep. just so I get the key? Great. So if I were to sing do a deer, in fixed do in D major. Right? Oh, wow. Re, mi, fa, re, fa, re, fa. No, I, mean, I could do it on words. That would be really fun. <laughs> re, a drop of golden sun. Me, a name I call myself. Fa, a long, long way to run. So, a needle pulling thread. La, a note to follow. So, tea, a treat with jam and bread. Do, a deer, a female deer, that will bring us back to Ray. Right? Which, if, if you grew up in movable so dough land, feels so wrong. But, you know, for me, that feels, right, living in fixed dough land. Um, and most, uh, most of the uh, pedagogies of fixed dough, their, their goal is uh, either to build perfect pitch, or to gradually acquaint students with singing in the different keys one by one so they grow familiar with what the solfege sounds like in the different keys. And so effectively, most fixed do pedagogies, like if you look at um, solfege et solfege, which is the, the French system, mm-hmm. um, they start you, you spend forever in C major, and then they introduce one flat, and then you spend a time in F minor, right? Or in, in F major. Um, and gradually they introduce one key after another so that it really, what you're learning is what the notes are for different scale degrees in all the different keys. Right. Uh, and I think this is often, you know, when people, people say fixed O, that's not, it's not a system. Um, it's, it's not a system if you just throw everything in right away with fixed O. But, uh, if you limit the introduction of keys and introduce keys one by one, uh, then then fixed O effectively uh, makes very quick that connection between scale degrees and and note names. So we've also yeah. used it at JMU. Um, we use it in our fourth semester of oral skills when we get to non-tonal music, and then we do use uh, inflection names. We use the same inflection names that we learned for movable do, um, and. Uh, but then we're using it partly just so that students have a way of navigating our our notation system, which is tonal. 
Uh, and if you're navigating non-tonal materials in a tonal notation system, it really helps to have that reminder of where the half steps are mm -hmm. <laughs> on the staff. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, th I think like when I'm working with my students on on first singing atonal music, I often have them yeah pick their tonic and literally sing tonic between every note of the melody before they sing the melody sequentially uh -huh. so that they're so that they're keeping all those tonal skills they have those references to a home pitch as they as they do it mm -hmm. totally yeah so okay so those are the basic solfege systems I and mean, there are other ones right there um, are the guidonian hexachordal system which is the old or kind of the original Renaissance system, and, and yeah, I think probably not worth chatting about too much uh, at the moment. Um, Save maybe, it for another day. Yeah, I think so, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but maybe we should just talk about if, let's say, I've not taught solfege to my students before. How do I start? How do I introduce solfege as a concept, a solfege system? What are you know? What are those? What are those first things I should do? That's a great question. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I suppose the first thing you have to do is pick a system or systems, and and start using it. Um, and then we're talking about sequencing and how you. There are any system that you choose. I suspect you're going to find. Uh, colleagues and and sequences already. Uh, can I just toss out a crazy idea that I totally stole from a friend who heard this at a conference? Imagine that our musical alphabet started from H <laughs> and was H I J K L M N, right? Yes. And so let's can we can we sing an H major scale together? H H right. H I J K L M N H, and if we came down from there, H oh, no. N right? You see, and we all cringe. Go ahead, you do it. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't. I can't. Right, but I think you know. I think about. I, I I like to think about that idea before I start introducing a solfege system to a group of students or a student, because. Like to me, I can't remember a time when do ti la sol fa mi re do felt challenging. Mm -hmm. But if you're just beginning, but it will absolutely, absolutely, it it mm -hmm. it'll be completely confusing. So, so you're saying don't dive in and start asking your students to sing full scales. <laughs> maybe not, or, or maybe not without aids, right? But I, I don't know about I don't know about you all, right. but like. What I like to do first is either introduce a subset of the scale to them and build it up bit by bit. Maybe that's the first few notes of the scale. Uh, or to write the scale on the board vertically in solfege from bottom to top and you know, then pointing finger go up and down so they can actually be reading it as they, as they, as they do it. Um, I don't know, what are first exercises you all use? Mimicry. I'm going to sing it to you, you sing it back to me. Um, mm -hmm. And mimicking uh, small subsets and then expanding the subsets that you uh, ask them to mimic. Um, yeah. And I have to say that I've, my experience is that um, 
well, all right, I'm dealing with college students who got into music, so, uh, who got into music school. So there, there's that. But uh, students who aren't familiar mm-hmm. with it gain familiarity quickly. Um, but uh, that may be absolutely biased by the level of student I'm teaching. <laughs> right. So if I reflect on uh, my teaching, I also have six years experience teaching elementary music. And what you're getting into are a lot of the methodologies of Kodai and ORF. And although there are a lot of differences between the two, what's the same is that you're starting with a small subset of pitches. So in terms of Kodai, we're looking at starting with So and Me, introducing La, then adding Do, um, but not rapidly. And we're also talking about much younger learners also. So you're spending a lot of time uh, making sure they are able to understand those before you're moving on. And Or if you're starting with Do, Re, Mi, just three pitches and then eventually adding So. And, you know, so same idea, mimicry, uh, starting in small step. Of course, there are so many songs and so many books and so many activities. We couldn't even possibly begin to get into that now, but... Um, the idea is the same. Start small and then add on when your students are ready. Yeah. And and starting small, I think there are kind of two basic ways to start small. There's that the sort of um, introduce a note at a time kind of way, which we find in both the orphan and Kodai approaches, methodologies, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where you say, okay, um, in Kodai, we gradually build up to the pentatonic scale, then eventually we add fa and ti, then gradually we start adding chromatics. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the other approach to starting small, which is sometimes more useful if, if you're working with older students, because they already know what a scale is. They want a whole scale. Why are we only singing pentatonic? Mm-hmm. Another way of starting small is to start by saying, okay, we're going to start with just steps in the scale. And then we're going to gradually learn to leap around in the scale bit by bit. And you might do that by doing small leaps first, or you might do it by leaping within particular chords, especially if you're working in a context where you're teaching harmony as well, right? So, um, I mean, I think about even just a lot of the great... Uh, so if we're thinking starting small in terms of of building up intervallic content, right? Then um, we might do things like... Uh, taking patterns up and down the scale. Like we might just go do, re, do, re, mi, re, mi, fa, mi. Where we're, we're getting used to the idea that that the the order can go forwards and backwards. And that's and that's a pretty important concept, right? Mm. Uh, think about how hard it was for us to try and sing the H major scale backwards. <laughs> um, and, you know, and then building up patterns that have leaps in them, do, re, mi, do, mi, re, mi, fa, re, fa, where we're starting to learn as well um, what what little leaps within the scale sound like, right? And you can gradually build up and make up those patterns to, to do anything. Or, or even, uh, you know, the classic one for getting comfortable going down the scale, I think, is the do, do, re, do, do, re, mi, re, do, do, re, mi, fa, mi, re, do, which probably every choral director in... America knows and has used at, at some point. Um, so, you know, all, all these things to just, there's certain, yeah, these things that um, as they become comfortable require almost no thought because because the order of the, the notes has become so ingrained. You know, we sort of defaulted to movable dough, right? But of course we could do all these on one, one, two, one, mm-hmm. one, two, three, two, one, one, two, et cetera, right? We can, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think these are good. I, one of the things that I um, 
think about a lot is like what are the actual skills that go into sight singing music or or orally analyzing it or transcribing it or playing it on an instrument by ear um, and they're largely two separate skills number one is I've got to be able to translate what I'm hearing to a soulfish system, or I've got to be able to translate a soulfish system to what I'm hearing, mm-hmm. right? So there, that's sort of the ear component of it. Was that do re or do mi? And then there's there's this mind component of, okay, I heard do mi, and I'm in the key of D major. What notes are those? Ah, that's D F sharp. Okay, now I can play that on my instrument. Uh, write it down, whatever, right? That we have, we have the ear part and we have, we have the mind part that are kind of two, uh, two separate component skills to it. Um, one of the joys I think of movable dough a lot of the times is that uh, you, don't, you don't have to think too much about the actual pitch names as you're, as you're getting going with it. You're thinking more about like wh- where you are in the staff. David, David, can you tell us about your brick sight singing right so i i will just go we have cinder block walls at school uh in the hallway and um and i've i've gone out in the hallway and and just said okay here's our staff um and uh just choose the the height of a cinder block as being the height of a space on the staff and so we're going to choose these five lines this one is dough uh you don't need to know what clef it is you don't need to know what key you're in uh, all you need to know is what I'm calling Do, and then the for me the great thing is that that reinforces not trying to translate for for example for students who uh, whose first instinct is to look and see letter names uh, I can get them to bypass that a little bit and to look and see relationships to the tonic so that they see where Do is they know that So is going to be two spaces up or two lines up uh, and it's also going to be a a space and a half down. I don't know how to say that. <laughs> um, it lets me quickly show where things are within a given scale. And uh, for me, that's also a very quick way to notate something is uh, is to, to just know where Do is, put the other scale degrees in the right places. Yeah. And, and this, you know, we see this a lot in the Kodai approach as well, that, uh, you know, written notation in uh, most Kodai texts starts with just uh, like a two-line staff mm-hmm. where the top line is so and the bottom line is me, right? And you just learn that so me is line, line, or one line, and you could have so just above the line or just below the line, right? And so so me is line to line or space to space, and, and you're effectively learning the visual relationship of those of those distances uh, on the staff without having to convert it to or from note names. Yeah. yeah. So, Chris, I mean, one thing we haven't talked about is ba, 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 perfect pitch. <laughs> uh, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. Oh no is right. Cause there's so many, there's so many, um, feelings about this. YouTube David, is, you look like you were about to well, say, well, I'm just, I'm saying YouTube is littered with, uh, with people claiming that they can teach you perfect pitch. And as, as far mm-hmm. as I know, uh, virtually every study says this, this can't be done. And once you're six years old or something, 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the, I think the real expert on this is, is Elizabeth West Marvin, mm-hmm. who's on the music theory faculty at the Eastman school of music. And, um, Betsy's worked, uh, closely with her colleagues at the university of Rochester in, uh, the, the brain sciences department there to do just so many studies at this point on, on, uh, on absolute pitch. Absolute pitch is the, the scientific name for perfect pitch. Um, and uh, basically, there are um, three competing theories for how, uh, for why some people have absolute pitch and, and some people don't. And the first theory, David, you kind of referred to is what's known as the critical period theory. So we know that, um, that as humans, if we don't learn a primary language, if we don't learn to speak before about age six, uh, then it's pretty much impossible to actually learn to speak after that. We know that, unfortunately, from uh, studies in particular of neglected children. Mm. Um, and that, in psychological terms, is known as, as a critical period, right? That you've got, to, you've got to learn it before then, or you can't learn it. And there's a super high correlation between the age people start musical study and whether they have perfect pitch. Those who start before age six uh, are... are much more likely to acquire it, and almost no one who starts after age six acquires it. Uh, so yeah, so that's the critical period theory. Um, the second uh, theory is um, the is a, an unlearning theory. This idea that we all start with absolute pitch, but uh, maybe we learn other ways to recognize music that uh, teach us that absolute pitch is not important, and so we gradually forget it. Uh, and you can see how that's similar to uh, to the critical period theory, right? It's mm-hmm. it's a question of are we adding a, a skill or are we forgetting a skill we had? Um, and then a third uh, theory is that there is a genetic component to it, right? Because how do we explain musicians who did start training before age six and didn't acquire perfect pitch, right? What was was there was that part of the nurture component or was there a nature component? Uh, to it. And, you know, the reality is we don't have, we don't have full answers for these yet, but all three of those competing or overlapping theories basically agree that if you don't have it by about age six, you're not, you're not going to have it. No, what some of Betsy Marvin's recent research has shown Mm -hmm. is that there are adults who are non-musicians who have a kind of perfect pitch. Mm. Um, which is sort of fascinating. She refers to a study, that, not one that, that uh, she did, but where um, this was actually done in the 90s, where there was a, uh, in the experiment, there was a, a room full of popular music CDs, super famous CDs, and people were instructed to go and pick their two favorite CDs and then pick their favorite song from one of the CDs, hold that CD up to their chest, think about the song, and then sing it. These are non-musicians. These are actually psychology majors in the study. Mm -hmm. And a full 25% of them sang it in the key it was on the CD. Mm. An additional 50% of them sang it within a half step of where it was on the CD. Mm. So it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting question, right? There may be, there may be more going on there. Um, but you know we've talked about we've talked about all these solfege methods and uh, it, and we're not talking about building perfect pitch except maybe with the case of fixed do when started at a very young age 
And, and there are pedagogies that are intentionally designed using fixed dough to train perfect pitch, you know, when you're starting at like age two or three mm. and so on. Um, what we're really talking about is building understanding of where you are in a scale and a collection and, and, and building out from that. So, yeah. It's also worth, worth noting that perfect pitch sags with age, that yeah. around age 40, uh, it sort of starts, things start sounding lower and lower and, you know, people with perfect pitch learn to adjust generally and that's, and that's fine as long as they're actively performing and practicing music. But, uh, it's there, there may be a physical, an actual physical component to perfect pitch that causes that. And, and there are various theories on that. So, yeah. Interesting. What's, what's sad is that it's become this kind of mark of genius in the music community. But mm. uh, if you ask many professional musicians who have it, they'll often tell you that it's, it's not a blessing. <laughs> Um, yeah, and 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 you know, um, we're talking about hearing hearing a pitch, right? A phenomenon versus hearing function, right? And you know, just knowing the name, the frequency of a note, doesn't tell us all that much about what it's doing musically. But knowing where it is in the scale, what it is harmonically, right? That gives us all sorts of information about how it how it feels, how it moves, what it means, how to perform it. Um, I had a, a friend in grad school who was also, uh, we were both uh, TAs for ear training at Eastman. And uh, Ilan, Ilan Levin, uh, is, you know, perfect pitch. Um, and I remember chatting with him and he said, yeah, I got here and I had to teach on scale degrees. And I hated it for a year. And I had to practice all the homework myself. And then I found at the end of the year, I was suddenly hearing music in a different way. I hadn't realized that I hadn't been hearing all those all those relationships. So, you know, it's there. These are these are different ways of hearing, for sure. Um, and the the good news is that that functional hearing of where am I in the scale that can be taught at any age. Um, but that phenomenological absolute pitch way really only up to age six at the latest. And and kind of hotly debated should you teach that is that is that worth teaching it's probably a question for another episode <laughs> <laughs> so well i feel like that's been a good chat about solfege systems have we missed anything any any final thoughts to add leah or david you know i just find something that you're comfortable with that you're comfortable singing teaching hearing music in and use that uh, because the students will pick up on it if if you're not comfortable with it um, or if you're learning it as they are as well. The students are going to know. So be comfortable with it. Although I would I would also throw out that I have learned systems alongside my students and and I've just been really open with my own struggles learning them. And mm -hmm. uh, that's been great too because then they feel like you're in their camp uh <laughs> that you oh yeah that you understand yeah if you're open I, about I it can, i can tell you that my first year of takademi was that way <laughs> <laughs> yeah and actually i i still i tell all my students if, if i'm if i for instance when i teach I, at the summers i teach at interlochen and and there we use move and i just tell my students you are going to hear me 
accidentally switch to Fixedo at some point. It is just going to happen. I will be in the you know in the middle of singing something, and three notes are going to come out in Fixedo, and it just you know, and that's just and I think they're generally really understanding about that, and and they tend to laugh when it mm-hmm. happens, like ah, you call that so it, a law. It humanizes like, it you, oh, of course. <laughs> it humanizes you. It's it's a great thing for students to realize that you are in fact human. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you know, I um, we'd love to hear from from uh, everyone who's listening. Like, what what would you like to know about? What would you like to know about in in music theory, music pedagogy, music technology? Uh, let us know. We have we have lots of ideas ourselves, but uh, of course, uh, want to want this podcast to be a, a place where we're talking about things that uh, that the teachers of music want to want to hear about. So, yeah. Any, uh, any final thoughts before we sign off? Awesome. Well, episode one, go gang. <laughs> uh, David, Leah, thanks. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll chat again soon. All right. Thanks. Good to see you. Great. Bye, everyone. Bye. Subscribe to Notes from the Staff on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and check us out at utheory.com slash notes. Notes from the Staff is produced by utheory.com. Utheory is the most advanced online learning platform for music theory. With video lessons, individualized practice, and proficiency testing, Utheory has helped more than 100,000 students around the world master the fundamentals of music theory, rhythm, and ear training. Create your own free teacher account at utheory.com slash teach.